0: If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. It probably wouldn't be shocking to anyone that regularly listens to this podcast that it's important for me to share stories from the autistic community. In sharing these stories, I do something I love, which is to learn about so many different aspects of autistic and neurodivergent experiences. One aspect of neurodiversity I don't know much about is the intersection that neurodiversity has with the law. That's why I am thrilled to have Haley Moss and AJ Link return to talk about Haley's new book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Haley, welcome back to Autism Stories. It's been a while, but great to have you back.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am grateful to be here.
0: Now, you're back because you have a new book out that's awesome, and I wanted to talk with you about it. So, your, your new book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. Uh, so, your, your publisher for the book is the American Bar Association. And I know you reached out to, to them to see uh, if they would publish the book. I imagine uh, you got a good response, as they are your publisher. Uh, Why was it important for you to have them publish your book, and what do you hope is the relationship with them, maybe beyond this book?
1: So I really wanted to make sure that we had this conversation about neurodiversity in the legal profession. So when I was in law school, no one was talking about neurodiversity. And when we talked about diversity and inclusion, more broadly, while I was in law school, there really was not much of a focus beyond just race and gender, is it was very much race, gender, and at one point, sexual orientation was part of that conversation. So as much as lawyers are changemakers in society, we're often behind the eight ball when it comes to inclusion. And it was honestly really frustrating to see, even when I was looking at summer associate positions, that disability was not part of that equation in diversity. And it made going through law school very isolating at times, too. So kind of what I was hoping to go for is how do I bring this to the largest audience of lawyers possible? Because there's interest in this. I get asked a lot about representing autistic people and other neurodivergent folk. That was something that came up a lot in law school, primarily because a lot of clients that we did serve were somehow in poverty, we're also people of color, we're also marginalized in multiple ways and usually didn't have access to the legal system. So there are so many different facets. And of course, we have employment issues for lawyers and law students who are neurodivergent, let alone the clients we represent. So I wanted to kind of do this big tent explanation of neurodiversity and showing that it is part of our diversity and inclusion in legal, even though it hasn't been taken nearly as seriously as it should be. But the American Bar Association has always been kind of at the forefront. They have the Commission on Disability Rights. They've always been very interested in these topics and making sure our profession is equitable and also is pursuing justice for not just those who can access it, but for everyone. So that was really something I looked forward to and really
0: valued. Hmm. Now, you know, there is a disability glossary in the book um, early on, um, and... I, I thought it would, you know, something like that can be really helpful because so often people may not be aware of terms um, that may be used in discussing disability. Um, we probably could just do several podcasts just on the glossary alone. <laughs> uh, however, one of the terms in the glossary I wanted to talk about is universal design um, in relation to the law. How do you see universal design as a way to improve law firms or other aspects of
1: the law? So, first, quick note about the glossaries, when I was trying to put that together, I wanted it to actually be in plain language. So then if you're explaining any disability concepts to someone who might not have a legal background, who might have an intellectual disability, or who may also just be unfamiliar, that it makes sense to them. So that to me was kind of something I did in a way also to model because I did talk about plain language later in the book as well. So the glossary was especially important for that reason as well. But when it comes to universal design, and I wanted to talk about that because it's something we see a lot in architecture and a lot we see in educational settings so I thought it could be really cool what if the law firms and legal services provider spaces that we're in and that even includes courts come to think of it what if they were all accessible and that they did have access needs for folks at the forefront is imagine how many more people would it just feel that they're physically shut out of a profession that has a lot of people a lot of different moving parts and even just I think about anytime I've ever been to court, there's so many different sensory experiences. And the people that I spoke to about going to court had that weren't lawyers had very similar experiences. So it's something I think about a lot is how can imagine if every firm had someone quiet, not even just a sensory room or a designated area, but something that could be quiet, or even if you can sometimes transform that break room during non lunch hours, basically, just imagine kind of where we could go with that is that a profession that is very much by the book can suddenly be more welcoming to everybody.
0: Now, um, you know, you mentioned plain language, and um, I, you know, I think about that a lot. And I'm wondering about plain language in terms of law clients. Um, while it's not easy to maybe explain every legal concept, I would imagine using plain language. Do you see some maybe essential concepts or documents that should Absolutely be in plain language for clients to understand.
1: I come from a place that I think everything should be in plain language when it comes to the law. I do not think you should need a law degree to understand what the Supreme Court does every single term, to read an opinion from a judge, to read an order. And I also think it benefits the litigators and lawyers because then they really understand what they're arguing, what they're advocating for, and they're able to explain the concepts to anybody who wants to know. There are many areas of law that I do not understand because I don't have the background. And having it presented in that format that's easier to read would honestly be a game changer. But for clients who have intellectual disabilities, they might have differences in processing, I think it's super helpful. And it's not making it age appropriate per se. I think there's kind of this thing that happens in plain language, is we think that it basically means that we can't talk about adult things. It means that we're basically making it so anybody can understand a very adult thing. So it's not that we're shying away from, oh, there might have been a murder. There might have been a, something that traumatic that you witnessed. It's that maybe just explaining it as you saw somebody die or you saw somebody kill another person that is just explaining it without having to go into the, well, this is what it would mean in the second degree. And this is what it would mean in the first degree, et cetera, et cetera. It's more of just making it that anybody can understand. I think that confidentiality agreements and thing in understanding things like privilege and attorney client privilege, having that in plain language would make a lot of sense it's, my attorney can't tell secrets that I tell them to somebody else unless I say it's okay. Like that is a very simple way of explaining the concept of confidentiality or attorney-to-client privilege. But at the same time, we just assume everybody understands when as we know, that's not always the case.
0: It's funny when you were mentioning, um, you know, Supreme court opinion and that, you know, those types of things being in plain language, it was like maybe a month ago, maybe two months ago, I was reading an opinion. I can't remember which one it was, but, um, I, I really only understood like, I don't know, 30, 40% of the vocabulary. And I was thinking, Oh, maybe I'll reach out to Haley or one of the other attorneys I know. And they're like, ah, oh, no, they'll just laugh at me. No, nobody's <laughs>
1: going to laugh at you. I, I really do think that everything should be explained. And probably one of the, the greatest resources that I came across was a guide from The Florida Bar Foundation, in conjunction with one of their fellows about 10 years ago, they put together a guide for public defenders and criminal defense attorneys representing people with IDD. And it actually explained things like confidentiality and what plea deals and all these different terms were in that kind of, here's how you can understand what's going on. And it's probably one of the best resources that I have. I don't think it's as readily available as it should be. But it's something that I wish that lawyers saw more often. And even though I am not a criminal lawyer, I've never represented anyone in criminal court, I found it extremely helpful to explain things, especially because people with IED do interact with not even the legal system and court system and criminal as witnesses, but they also might have more interactions with law enforcement and not always good ones And than your neurotypical non-disabled person.
0: Beyond plain language, what are some other really important things that law firms and attorneys should um, consider doing in in working with uh, neurodivergent clients?
1: I think a lot of it really comes down to understanding that there's more than one way to communicate. So I think when we talk about communicating with clients, we think that It must be presented in this specific way. And if they don't understand, we get really frustrated. There's a lot of frustration with people who are seeking representation and a lot of frustration from attorneys who don't always think like, oh my gosh, they didn't get it right away. Why don't they get it? It's a waste of my time. I have to bill. I have so many other things to do. And I totally understand where everybody's coming from here. But I think it's understanding that you have to make reasonable accommodations. And just because someone does have a disability or is neurodivergent, it doesn't mean that they don't understand what's happening. It means that they might need that information in a different way. So maybe you might need to make a visual. Maybe you might need to let them use an AAC device to tell you what their needs are. That maybe they are going to bring in a support person. And of course, if they're bringing in support people, you have to make it clear that it's more like a translator than a family member or someone that's just there. Because then, of course, that does bring in attorney-client privilege type issues. So if it's someone who's more akin to a translator, there's no privilege, isn't destroyed. But if there's, like, if I hypothetically brought, like, my mom because I wanted to bring my mom to hear what the lawyer had to say, that could be a privilege issue. So, and destroy privilege that I had with my attorney because they're not just between me and my attorney. So... There's different things that attorneys need to be considering when they're representing neurodivergent folk. But I think really the most important thing is communication. And communication goes for anyone that I think goes into the legal system in any way, shape, or form. But I think when we're talking about representing neurodivergent folks, it's really important. Maybe even break up the information so you're not just giving it all at once. I know I get overwhelmed sometimes and someone gives me a lot of information at once. And I go, whoa, 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 we got to stop. We got to have a moment to process what's going on here. Right. So I think having that or even bringing it in chunks or even writing certain things out can be really helpful. There are so many ways to communicate. And I think that attorneys are pretty much sold the bill of goods you have to say it on a phone call. Or you have to have it in this particular conference room type setting. Maybe meeting someone in their home might be more comfortable for them. Or maybe in a certain space that's still private, but more sensory friendly. Or maybe they will only text you if they have questions because that's how their brain works. So I think really understanding that there is differences in communication for most neurodivergent people, not just autistic people, is really paramount to making sure that relationship runs smoothly and that everybody gets the outcome that they're hoping for. The lawyer wants to be able to best represent their client. And the client wants a very specific outcome. Whether they want a, they want to sue somebody. They want to avoid owing money to someone, or they want to avoid prison time, or they just are in some cases having to be on the stand for whatever the reason is. I kind of see that as everybody wants to meet their goals, and communication is how we meet those goals.
0: Now, you know, in reading your book, um, you you talked about um, something that is, I think, a stereotype of autistic people that is. So false, and that is uh, having a lack of empathy. You know, neurodivergent people express empathy, certainly in in different ways. Um, And you talked in the book about the empathy of neurodivergent attorneys. How do you see the empathy of neurodivergent attorneys as an asset to their clients?
1: The great thing is that I got to speak to plenty of attorneys in writing this book. And I got to also speak to non-attorneys, non-lawyers for their kind of take. So I got to speak to one of my friends who's a speech language pathologist. I got to speak to lawyers who have ADHD. They might have learning disabilities. They might be autistic. And kind of this really common thread that would show up is, you know, as neurodivergent folks, we might be the best people to represent certain people because we've been in their shoes. We know what it's like to be marginalized by something that might not be visible. We know what it is like to have barriers to access to even get in the door and something that Casey Dixon who is an ADHD coach said to me when I spoke to her is that a lot of lawyers who are neurodivergent particularly with ADHD they think something might be wrong with them or that they're not good at being lawyers because there's so many different pressures in the profession and she said what if you're the right lawyer for one particular client like what if you're the perfect lawyer for this person because of your background because of how you approach a problem because of the ways that you're going to approach something and I was like yeah that's really helpful and it's funny because While I was speaking to lawyers, I ended up repeating what Casey told me to them, and it was really validating for so many lawyers who had struggled with challenges related to executive dysfunction in particular, because they're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just a failure of a lawyer, I overbill, I do this, I do that, I make mistakes, I get distracted, and it's like, oh my gosh, no, you're probably approaching something right, and you're the perfect person for this other person.
0: Now, before we get too far into the interview, I want to make sure that we... um let people um, know how how can they learn more about the book and uh, absolutely purchase it.
1: So the really exciting thing is it is available from the American Bar Association directly. We're trying to get to Amazon hopefully in the next few weeks. I know it takes time to get listed on Amazon, but soon enough, I know that legal books tend to also be expensive. I do not want that to be a barrier to access for you. So if you are listening to us today, you can get 20% off with great 20 from the American Bar Association, so I'm happy to hook you guys up with some discount codes and other great stuff, so I just want to be able to help as many people, so something that I think was really powerful and even having our conversation about this book is a lot of people feel kind of intimidated because it is through the American Bar Association, the t- target audience is lawyers, and I think you can attest to this too, Doug, is you don't have to be a lawyer to get something out of this, that no. even in the review process, we had that conversation is, if you are neurodivergent, if you love someone who is neurodivergent, or you are neurodivergent or work with someone who is, you will probably walk away with something. My mom said the same thing. And my mom, I think it's one of the first times I've heard my mom say the word neurodivergent instead of neurodiverse or autism. And it was a really powerful experience. So I think no matter who you are, you can walk away with something. And I look forward to being able to connect with everyone and if you want a direct link there's also one on my website at haleymoss.co or haleymoss.net, depending on how you feel i'm still getting used to a little url change around there but i'm really excited to get to share and connect and i will be probably posting a lot about this book in the coming Mm. days and weeks as well
0: and come on amazon what do you have else to do let's get this book on amazon
1: I know. it's really Honestly, there's stuff in publishing that you don't know unless you're in publishing, like that it has to be submitted to Amazon. And usually there's different like distribution partners and things like that that make that happen. So there's some behind the scenes stuff to get to Amazon in the first place
0: to list and sell your book. Now, you, you said um, early on in the book that, um, you know, something that I love, that you don't have all the answers alone and shouldn't be expected to either. And that this is a team effort. And each of us has the capacity to listen, learn, and make our profession more inclusive of neurodiversity and people who think differently. In, in regards to a team effort, it sure seemed like you did a heck of a lot of research for this book. What, what did you learn um, through, through this um, research process?
1: I knew it was not I did not want to be the only spokesperson for neurodiversity because that's just not true I am privileged in some areas and I am less privileged in others so I know that I do not know the experience of being a more seasoned attorney I've been out of school for three years I am a woman I am white I do not have the same experiences that someone who might I was also diagnosed as a child I don't have the same experiences that someone who is a person of color might have that a man or a non-binary or trans person might have I don't have the same experience someone who's late diagnosed someone with ADHD co-occurring mental health conditions or learning disabilities has so it kind of did take a village to really put this book together and get to talk to people who had those different experiences and honestly probably the most shocking thing that I've learned is there were a lot of women lawyers with ADHD most and at least that was who was willing to talk with me the most was women lawyers with ADHD and I didn't realize there were so many of us Like, I knew there was definitely neurodiversity, and there was a study on lawyer mental health a couple of years ago that really wanted to dig into statistics on anxiety, depression, and alcoholism. But what ended up happening is there was a statistic in there about 12.5% of lawyers exhibited traits of ADHD, and it was never mentioned again elsewhere in the study. And it really fascinated me to think there's so many neurodivergent people in this profession who either don't realize they're neurodivergent and part of a bigger community, or who are shamed for it in that same bucket as anxiety, depression, alcoholism, and stigma. So I thought it was a really interesting thing to kind of get the take of people who have different experiences and who might have been in government service or who might have been in private practice or other public sector positions. So I really wanted to get that whole composite of what does neurodiversity really look like in this profession. And it doesn't just look like me. And that's something I think that's really important to highlight. And I also learned a lot from the people that I spoke with is that you, there's still room for you to be successful, that you're here for a reason that there's a reason that you chose to go into law and there's something to get excited about. But something that really stuck with me that I didn't get to include in the book because this conversation happened well into the publishing process is with the former dean of my law school, we were talking about neurodiversity in the law. And he said, I think a lot of autistic people go into law because law, after all, is the software of society. Because mm-hmm. we we're talking about the STEM stereotypes, but law is basically the software of society. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> there's lots of rules. There's." a lot of things run because of law and legislation and policy that makes so much sense. And it was like one of those little nuggets of wisdom. I wish I had a place for, and I could have stuck in there, but I will never stop thinking about it. So Mm -hmm. I learned so much from everyone. And it's really kind of the best thing about advocacy is how much you learn from different people.
0: Absolutely. The you mentioned there was a lot of uh, female attorneys with ADHD. When you approached them, were, were they like, you know, did they jump at the chance to talk to you um, because they're like, finally, I get to talk to someone about this? Or did you have to kind of twist their arm a little bit um, just because of, you know, their concerns about um, disclosing in this profession?
1: So a lot of people actually reached out to me about talking to this book. I said, like, hi, i writing about neurodiversity, people with these conditions in particular. If you want to have a conversation about your experiences or any tips, especially in X, Y, and Z, I'd love to hear it. And I was surprised how many people were willing to speak with me. And it's not that I wanted to out them. I didn't want I'm like, if you don't feel comfortable with me telling where you work, if you want me to use a pseudonym for you, like I will do anything I can to make you feel comfortable. But I know that we can help a ton of people. And everyone was very open with me, which I didn't quite expect. And then I had people who didn't want to speak to me, but they wanted me to know that I wasn't alone in being a neurodivergent lawyer. I did have people that I've worked with closely over the last couple of years who said, hey, I've never actually told my employer or anything, but I have ADHD, LD, autism, etc. And I was like, oh, thanks for sharing that with me. That's so cool. It makes me feel less alone in this little space we both occupy together. So for me, it was really powerful to kind of see that strength in numbers. And people, I don't think, I think people are afraid of disclosing to their employer because they're afraid of what, or they don't realize what accommodations they may need. but. I think there's kind of a safe and like a sisterhood or like a kinship almost between other neurodivergent people. And I've noticed that especially with the women that I spoke with is they felt seen and heard. And in some cases I had budgeted to speak to someone for 20 minutes and I'm on the phone with them for an hour and a half because they had that connection or that they felt that it's the first time they were ever able to talk about that so openly.
0: Well, we, you know, we were, we were just talking about research and, you know, one of the, you know, one of the many people that Haley um, interviewed for her book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, is the one and only AJ Link. And AJ, um, thanks so much for joining me and Haley so we could talk a little bit about that.
2: Thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I feel so lucky to be on this call with you. Absolutely. Oh my
1: gosh, I'm so happy to have you because you were like my favorite person to talk to about neurodiversity and autism with lawyers.
2: I appreciate that. I feel like I'm not that great, but I I feel really honored to be here.
1: Um, if you don't know, AJ basically is co president of the National Disabled Law Students Association and is absolutely crushing it.
2: Thank you, thank you. I can't say thank you enough.
0: <laughs> now, when I was when I was reading your book, Haley, you know, I was expecting to learn uh, much about neurodiversity as it relates to lawyers in the book. However, I wasn't expecting maybe to have become, um, there was a a part of the book um, talking about the challenges that disabled law students face and I felt really kind of emotionally connected to that um, part of the book, which I I wasn't expecting. So I was wondering for the two two of you um, thinking about um, disabled law students, how far away are we from getting adequate support to level the playing field for disabled law students.
1: Do you want to go first, AJ?
2: Yeah, sure, I can. Very, very far off, and I'm not exactly sure when exactly we'll get to equitable treatment of disabled law students. I think there are so many compounding factors when you think about how testing is done to get into law school, the whole recruitment process, becoming a law student once you're there, the, the environment of law school and the stigma around being a disabled student, specifically a neurodiverse student that gets extra time, I think it is the big stigmatizing accommodation. But there's there's just so much, right? It's not something that you can just change with educating professors more. You have to change what the law school environment looks like in terms of students and how they interact with disabled individuals. I know that most disabled individuals are still afraid to disclose that they're disabled or disclose that they have accommodations for fear of their classmates bullying them or having other kinds of negative consequences associated with that. So for me, and I don't want to sound too jaded, uh, it's a really long way off and there's a ton of work to be done.
1: I'll be a little bit more positive then because I graduated law school three years ago and when I was in law school I think it was actually worse off and I hate to say that in, in the last three years I think we've made really huge gains. So I come from a positive perspective. Things have gotten better. They have not always been great. They have been worse, but they are moving in the right direction. So three years ago, we did not have some of the same opportunities and resources for disabled and neurodivergent law students. So when I was in law school, I actually did not know anybody who was neurodivergent until my 3L year. And I say that because my law school was not great about accommodations. My law school struggled a lot with connecting people. And they really struggled with how do we handle neurodiversity in our classrooms. They didn't really think about disability. And I often tell a story from my first year of law school about in my 1L section, there was a blind student. And probably one of my biggest regrets was not thinking, oh my gosh, our campus is so inaccessible to this girl, this woman. Like, how are we not doing more? And instead, all of my classmates would just complain that every day she was late to class. And then I realized, oh my gosh, y'all, like, this room is on the second floor. I don't know how accessible our elevators are. She's always alone. I don't know what her situation is or if she has any sight or if she's just completely using her cane. I just felt, and she dropped out after the first semester. So that was the first real illustration I had that the issue, that disabled law students on my campus were facing other than the fact that i was getting denied accommodations but in the last three years we have the national disabled law students association my law school now has a chapter of endulsa, and that was not even something that was on the table when i was in law school they had a disability advocacy and like mental health alliance my 1l fall that quickly folded it never came back and Even the Quello Center programs at Loyola that are absolutely incredible for building a pipeline for disabled students to get to law school in the first place, and to also support law students in different internship opportunities through them, and also that the Commission for Disability Rights for the ABA posts, like that stuff didn't exist when I was in law school. The Quello Center program started after I graduated. So thinking back, think about how much has changed in just a couple of years. And I know Endulsa hosts a wonderful workshop during the summer in conjunction with the quello center as well for law faculty and administrators to learn about disability in law school populations so i think about how much has changed in 3 years and that makes me hopeful that we might get to this more equitable place that aj mentioned sooner than we hope than we're expecting because i look at how much has changed in 3 years and when i was in law school i had a lot less hope especially cuz the national association of law students with disabilities and the national association of lawyers with disabilities all folded And it was just like, oh great, there's nothing out there for me other than the Disability Rights Bar Association for lawyers that were particularly practicing in this arena and adjacent to that. So it's really exciting to see change happen, and I hope that it happens faster. But I think that as we have new generations show up, things are getting better as well. So I'm hopeful.
0: Now, one thing that I think about every day is executive functioning um, for myself and for others. So I, I, you know, in reading this book, I'd imagine that executive functioning in law school is pretty darn difficult. Uh, what, what was your experiences um, in terms of executive functioning when you were in law school?
1: I was very bad at it. And I think a lot of my classmates genuinely just believed I didn't care and I was lazy. That's the easy answer. And sometimes it was making a decision of what to prioritize or well, am I going to do the reading? Am I going to take a shower? What about my laundry? And keep in mind, I also made the grand decision to enter law school when I had just turned 21. So I barely even knew how to function at like the undergraduate level because I struggled enough functioning on my own in undergrad that being in like the real adult feeling club of law students was a little bit much. To f- so looking back, I realized at that point in my life not only was I struggling because I'm autistic, but I was also just a victim, I guess, of age. I don't have a better term in my, my head. I'm so sorry, this sounds really bad. But I'm like, I was in, in circumstance, I think that I had the deck on completely, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm gonna be able to executive function through this. And law school studying, they're told this there's this very prescribed way to do it, is outline, go join study groups and all this stuff. It's like, well, if you're not very good at making friends and having certain social skills to begin with. And outlining might not be the best way that you study. You're basically already being told you're set up for failure. So just imagine being having difficulties with executive functioning, having to self-accommodate, and realizing that the tried and true wisdom of law school does not necessarily work and apply to you. So very difficult. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think before I answer, I just want on the topic of outlining, whenever outlining comes up, I always want to say for whoever's listening, you don't have to outline if you don't want to. If that work doesn't work for you, it's completely fine. There are other ways to study and be successful in law school. And so I want to make that clear because, as Haley said, a lot of times it's kind of put out there that you have to outline. And I just want to always, always reiterate that's not true. Find success however you do. I think I was pretty lucky. I'm kind of the opposite of Haley in that I took several years off and I went to law school um, when I was almost 30. And I went to law school kind of knowing what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. I think I found myself in law school, though, in that I always wanted to be an advocate and a lobbyist. And I just happened to become a disability advocate and a self-advocate and disability rights lobbyists for law schools but when it comes to picking and choosing what's important I always knew that my grades weren't important to me that's really anathema in law school and a lot of times people don't believe me but I honestly just didn't care so for me I could just show up to the exam right write whatever bullshit and take the grade <laughs> <laughs> um that
1: was me in con law for what it's worth I, I realized I was getting a C no matter what I did and I didn't care
2: yeah I always try to tell folks and they never believe me like grades are, are pretty much fake right if, if you don't Happen to fall in the arbitrary line of an A or a B plus, then like it, it doesn't matter. But for me, executive functioning really hurt me when it came to papers. I'm awful at timelines and scheduling, and this is something I struggle with to this day. Like when I have to do book chapters or I have to write articles or anything like that, it's on deadline day or you know right before deadline where I'm actually working on and finishing it. And when you're writing, you know, two thousand, four thousand, ten thousand word papers, sometimes waiting to the last minute means you're you're not going to pass. And I. I've failed classes, I've had to retake classes, I've had to get extensions into other semesters just because, you know, that's that's just not what I'm good at. And I mm-hmm. accept that. It's hard. A lot of people around me don't accept that and they don't understand that I accept it. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna fail sometimes. That's that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but with everything else apart from long-term papers, I, I felt really, really good because I got to do a bunch of different things. I had a really, really organized Google Calendar. And for me, it was amazing getting to go from calendar event to calendar event to calendar event, knowing that I could, I only had to allot a certain amount of time and focus to one area and then Mm -hmm. I can move on. And for me, that's, that's, I love working like that where I'm I'm really dedicated for a couple of hours. I get to take a break and then go to something completely different and Mm -hmm. work on different parts of my mind. And for me, that was, that was the best experience.
1: Why was I not in law school with you? I feel like it would have been so much more fun. And also I'm with you on the calendar. Because if things don't show up in my calendar, they don't exist to me. So the fact that Doug texted me before we showed up today, I was like, oh, my gosh, this was not in my calendar. There was no Google Calendar thing. And I, like, forgot (laughs) that we were meeting today. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to run. Like, whoops. But meanwhile, with papers, I also have it in articles and things, I also have that tendency to wait. Or I do it super early. And I can't – But. For me, it was always the test because I felt like there was no – I felt like papers, I had more control over what was happening and what I was putting in it. But when it came to things like the typical law school exam, I was like – and the grades thing I think was really hard for me adjusting to law school because – a lot of us end up in law school because we're very motivated or we're traditionally high achievers. And this is something that a lot of the women with ADHD, especially who are diagnosed later in life, were telling me. of, like, yeah, we were always very motivated. We were always high achievers. We always worked really hard. And often when they said they were working really hard, what they were doing was trying to pass and mask ADHD symptoms as well. But it was super interesting to see that there were just a lot of really high achievers who picked to go into these professions. They usually had pretty good grades. Then law school and practice happened and things went awry somewhere. Of whether it's keeping track of billing, whether it's the different demands or realizing, oh, your grades are not what you're used to from undergrad or high school or some other form of schooling because law school grades are completely be yes to put it lightly.
2: <laughs> They're fake. They're fake. I think with calendars and scheduling, I know Haley, you and I have talked about this. The first thing I asked, I was like, "Hey, I need to know the date and time, and if possible, send me a calendar invite." Whenever anyone asks me to do anything, I say, "Please send me a calendar invite." That's like the first yep. thing. But to neurodivergent folks specifically, when you talk about grades and you know what success looks like, I know that I'm really fortunate, and that I I just don't care. I can't I can't work myself up about grades. I, I never really have. But I would, I would, again, just reiterate to folks that your grades don't define you. A lot of times your grades are really subjective based on who your professor is. You Mm -hmm. can write the same final for a different professor and get a different grade without changing a word. It kind of just depends on who you're writing for. And I think that's a skill that they don't teach you in law school, but you have to learn is learn to write to the professor for that specific exam, which Mm -hmm. I think is absolute garbage. But yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I say this a lot, and a lot of people really don't take it to heart, and I wish more people would. It's like, your grades don't define you, and it's okay if you don't get the best grades. I know that for a lot of folks who go to law school, I'm not one of them, but for a lot, getting good grades is kind of how they define their academic success. But mm-hmm. there's success in so many other ways. You can find success in the friends that you make, in the clubs that you join, and the advocacy projects that you do on campus. Yep. And the things that you change in your law school that you don't like. There are so many different ways for you to find success and find contentment and happiness as a person. And grades should be pretty well down on that list, at least to me. So that's all I'll say about grades.
1: Adding the bar exam to that same conversation, because I think that we have a lot of folks who end up retaking or not taking or whatever your situation with that is that success on the bar exam also is not contingent on your ability to be a lawyer, be a great advocate, or if you have any business being in this profession. I still come from the camp that the bar exam should not exist. I think it is classist. I think it is ableist. I think it is racist. The whole history of the bar exam is every single terrible ism in history. Oh, and sexist, because it was originally invented to keep women out. So everything about the bar exam is bad and it needs to leave. So I don't think it measures if you're going to be a good lawyer. If you practice law the way that you studied for the bar exam, you would be accused of malpractice so fast your ass would be disbarred. That being said, the bar exam does not measure success. And I think that if you are in that process of either studying for it, debating taking it, or you are retaking it or deciding whether or not you even want to take it, that doesn't mean that you were bad at law school, good at law school, a good advocate, a bad advocate, a great lawyer, or a terrible lawyer. It is complete garbage that is a gatekeeping mechanism and hazing process that should not exist.
2: I am also about abolishing the bar exam. I will say for those who feel obligated or compelled to take it because of several circumstances, make sure that you do your accommodations work early sure you get accommodations on the NPRE if possible. I just learned that you can apply for accommodations on the NPRE. I think, two years in advance. So get all of that started because it's a hassle and it's a hurdle and it's an obstacle and a barrier to access. And if you need help with that, you can always reach out to NDLSA. But I, I, I completely agree with Haley. I'm a, I think I'm a bit more extreme in that I refuse to take the bar on principle. And, again, I know that a lot of people don't have that choice, and I'm really privileged. I'm really fortunate that I can make a life for myself without taking the bar exam and passing the bar exam, but I think it's total bullshit.
1: It is. I mean, I took it because I didn't know I had a choice. And also (laughs) because I did have a firm job waiting for me after graduation. So I was like, of course I'm going to take it. And my logic was also this, I did not suffer through this complete barrier to access of law school to not make it across that final finish line. So that's kind of what was ingrained in my head, and especially the pressure that was put on about taking the bar and bar success. But I totally respect and love that you don't have to take it. That is just Absolute.
2: Yeah, and again, I'm really fortunate and I'm really privileged, uh, but I would just say that there are thousands and thousands of people with JDs who do not practice law in any way, shape, or form, and they have great lives. Um, and because the legal profession is so full of shit, a lot of people get burnt out. And, I mean, again, I'm not trying to dissuade folks because I know that for yeah. a lot of people, they've dreamt their whole lives about becoming a lawyer and changing the system and all those cool, shiny things that they hold up. But for those who are maybe iffy about it, know that it's you don't have to. And that's, that's the only thing I'd love to communicate, especially especially yeah. to neurodiverse folks who feel like they have to fit into some kind of box as a litigator or get shoved into a box as uh, an M&A attorney because they're good at contracts or whatever. Just know that you don't have to if, if you don't want to. And I know, again, that comes from a place of privilege, but I, I just want folks to know that that's an option to them.
0: AJ, um, I know last time we, you were on Autism Stories, we talked about NDLSA. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that for people that may not have uh, listened to that first podcast?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm so sorry that I dropped an acronym instead of saying the name. It's the National Disabled Law Students Association. So we advocate on behalf of neurodiverse and disabled prospective law students, current law students, and recent graduates, as well as re- our... I guess we call them baby attorneys instead of young attorneys because we, we realize that they're older or um, older young attorneys, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we do all kinds of advocacy projects around all different kinds of spaces. I know Haley mentioned the National Association of Law Students with Disabilities, which is termed Knowleswood, That was defunct, and a few of us came along just a little bit after Haley. I want to say it was the year after Haley graduated, maybe. And we were like, let's just make a new org. Let's... Let's fill the void. And so I've been doing that for almost two years now, at least officially as the board. We've been around for a year, but the organizer's been around a lot longer. So yeah, you can reach us at ndlsa.org. You can reach us on Twitter at Nat Dalsa and on Instagram at Nat Dalsa and on Facebook and LinkedIn. I think we do all the socials. I know we do all the socials because I'm running them currently while we're transitioning, folks. So if you want to volunteer and you have social media strengths, please let me know so I don't have to run the accounts. <laughs>
0: And don't you have a Clubhouse room that's going on?
2: Yes, we do. <laughs> all the social media, we're on Clubhouse, we usually do every other week. We're gonna try to start to do more rooms. We know that Clubhouse is really inaccessible, especially for folks who have low vision, vision impairments, or or I'm sorry, not those those folks, for folks who have deafness or hard of hearing. So we do offer CART, you link it through our Twitter so that you can follow along An auditory disability.
0: And um, I know we only have a few minutes left. I could talk to the two of you all day about this. But So I just wanted to give you, Haley, kind of the last word on, uh, on your book.
1: Oh my gosh, I don't know what you want me to say about it other than I'm really excited that this exists, and I'm glad that I get to interface and work with some really cool people, and that our profession is indeed neurodiverse and should be celebrating and welcoming attorneys with disabilities and who are also neurodivergent. So hopefully if you are someone who's new to that journey, or you are... Neurodivergent yourself that you check out my book and hopefully you learn something cool and I'd love to get to talk with you.
0: Thank you, Haley and A.J., AJ and Haley, thanks so much for um joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was a great surprise. I'm so glad I got invited. And y'all go get Haley's book, and it's not just because I'm in one of the acknowledgments.
0: <laughs> you were one of the first acknowledgments.
2: You're one of my favorite human beings <laughs> to work with,
1: and it's Makes me so happy. Like, it's funny. The other day my mom was like, Do you know AJ? He looks like he does really cool stuff. I'm like, Well, yeah, of course I do. AJ's the best.
2: I feel again so honored that your mother knows my name and who I am. <laughs> and so I'm so grateful. Thank y'all so much. I really appreciate being here. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much to Haley and AJ for the conversation. To learn more about Haley's new book and to learn more about AJ check out the links in the podcast description of this episode. If you would like to learn beyond this podcast how Autism Personal Coach can help you to reduce your daily overwhelm and get the things you want in your life, then book a Zoom call with me today. A link to book the call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, It would be great if you could tell a friend about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss two of my favorite topics, employment and special interests. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.